0: How many of you have read the Harry Potter books? Show of hands. More than the first service. How many of you have seen the movies? See, there are more people that watch movies than read. I don't know if you all noticed that. Did you notice the books got heavier as you went on? Not just like bigger. They did, though. They got heavier. But they got heavier. Situations are more dire. The problems are more grown up. Things are more sinister as they happen. One of the ways we often describe this is they're darker. The books are definitely better than the movies, but as we've seen, more of us watch movies. And you can actually see this, because movies are a visual medium. We actually see this darkness portrayed. If you actually watch them, you see at the beginning the Warner Brothers logo that comes up. For sorcerers, it's like the Looney Tune Warner Brothers logo. Bright, colorful, regular. The next one It's a little less bright, clouds in there, then from then on it's just dark, it's almost black and white. And the, the movies don't get lighter after the intro there. They stay dark. And by the time you get to the last couple movies, it's like pitch black, like you have to watch it at night where there's no light coming in or you can't see things that are happening on the screen. There's always this sense of foreboding, of despair, of harm that can happen at any time. And as Dan has mentioned, talking about 2020, this imagery of darkness is one that we know well this year. You can think about it in the way that we just have like when anything bad happens now, we just toss it up to 2020, just hashtag 2020, and it makes sense, it fits. Emotionally, many of us have been fearful. We've been anxious. We've been angry. We've been frustrated. We've been exhausted. We've felt these at the same time or vacillated back and forth between these and a hundred other different things. Externally, we've felt it too. We've been isolated. Some of us have been sick. Some of us have lost jobs or income. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us who are isolated at home are having a hard time with our families. It's not easy. Most of us had hopes and plans for 2020. The year started off great. All the holidays lined up Fridays and Saturdays, I think, this year. It's supposed to be a great year. Just throw it out the window. Holiday plans out the window. Thanksgiving this last week. Nothing like normal for most of us. Now we come to Christmas and it's hard to even get excited because it's not the normal stuff. The season of Advent where we're looking toward and anticipating Christ's coming fits well. Because it's permeated with this imagery of darkness and light. Where despair gives way to hope we see it with the advent wreath. If it were dark in here, you'd see the darkness and we light one candle. a flicker of light, you can see a little bit. Then every week we light one more candle and the light grows and the darkness is dispelled. We see it with the time that we celebrate Christmas. It's not an accident that Christmas is the end of December after the winter solstice. Where the nights are long and the days are short seasonal affective disorder kicks in here in Wisconsin. We have to get our happy lamps out. We have to take our vitamin D. I don't know if any of you are like this. Just it happened this week. We're like, it's about time to get ready for bed. I'm tired. It's dark out and then you look at your watch and it's like 4:30. <laughs> but then we celebrate Christ's birth, December 25th, and the days start getting longer. The nights start getting shorter. The light starts to overtake the darkness. And we can have hope. Glimpsing the light at the end of the tunnel, knowing that this darkness will not last. So with that imagery in mind, we're going to read from Isaiah 9. Which Luke just read it, but he skipped a couple verses. So I'm throwing those back in as we go. So read together Isaiah 9, 2-7. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal that you are sending light into a dark world god we ask that you would help us by your spirit that you would illumine this well-known text to our hearts and minds afresh that we would see and know and love you more deeply and that we would be filled with hope and expectation for christ pray this in jesus name amen So we just finished the book of Amos, where we walked through it chapter by chapter, and now we're jumping into this passage for Advent, where we first look at the prophets looking toward Christ's coming. And so as we do that, we do want to be careful that we make sure we look at it still in context, that we're not just ripping it out and making it whatever we want to be. We want to make sure that we're handling God's word well, and that we're seeing what it means and how it still applies to us, even as we're just jumping in for this one sermon. And so this well-known text comes in the middle of this section of Isaiah that's chapter 7 to 12. It's called the book of Emmanuel. And Isaiah is a prophet to Judah and Jerusalem, the southern tribe. So Israel had split. And then the northern tribe we had, Amos was to the northern tribe. And then Isaiah is to the southern tribe. And so he's a prophet down there. And the king of Judah is Ahaz. And he's not a good king. You can read about him in 2 Kings 16. And you'll see there that he does not walk in the ways of the Lord, that he sacrifices at the high places and the temples to other gods, and that he even sacrificed his own son to a false god. This is not what we should be expecting from the line of David, from the king of God's people. And through Isaiah... God has asked, um, in chapter 7, what sign he wants to be given. Now, Israel's at this point, or Judah's at this point where they're actually about to be attacked by the north, by Israel, the northern kingdom, and then they're with the Syrians. So there are these two armies that are going to come down on them. And Isaiah comes, what sign do you want? Make it as high as the heavens. And he says, I won't put the Lord to a test. So the Lord says, I will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Ahaz then makes this treaty with the Assyrians, who end up overtaking Israel, the northern kingdom later. And they end up becoming a vassal nation or a nation of servants under the Assyrians, where even gold is taken out of the temple in Jerusalem and given to the king of Assyria. It's easy to imagine how things could be different if Ahaz had just asked for the right thing, right? If he had said, God, deliver us, give us peace, God says he would have done it. But he doesn't. So now they're battling the, As- the Syrians in Israel and they're under the heel of the Assyrians. Things just got worse By him trying to fix it. And so right before we get to this passage in chapter 9, we're given the status of Judah. It says that the people have followed Ahaz in his rejection of the Lord. That when they look around, all they see is distress and darkness, anguish and gloom, and they're thrust into this thick darkness. So when we have this oracle start it's not coming out of nowhere. It's a real dark situation that the people are in. So as we come to this text we want to ask what hope do we have when things seem so dark? And this oracle can be divided into two sections in verses 2 and 3 we kind of have the hope is described. And then in verses 3 to 7 the hope is explained. So we're going to kind of take them in order. So let's look first at the hope that is is described. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is exactly what you want to hear if your description is deep darkness and gloom. There's now light and joy, complete reversal. And if we pay attention here, we actually see that these come about passively for the people of God. It says, on them light has shone, and you, that is God, have increased its joy. God does the work here on the people's behalf. They don't have to dig themselves out of darkness They don't have to psych themselves out of their gloom. But God brings light. And God brings joy. Do we grasp that? Israel didn't. Ahaz tries to navigate it politically. Teams up with a worse nation than the others. And they're actually in a worse spot because of him trying to fix it. I think we're so often told, and this message is reinforced so often in our culture, that we do need to fix it. Right? Don't we just need to work harder? Don't we just need to be better? Don't we just need to change our attitude? That if we were just positive, if we had a positive attitude, things would be better. There wouldn't be as much gloom. We'd be happier. After all, doesn't God help those who help themselves? No, we don't. And no, he doesn't. Those are lies that we're told, that many of us have internalized. As we read scripture, we actually see the opposite. We see God stepping in to choose, to love, and to save people that don't make any sense. He chooses Israel, the smallest nation, and sets his love upon them. He chooses Moses to be his mouthpiece. (laughs) He says Moses was not eloquent and is slow of tongue and speech. That's who you want public speaking for you, isn't it? God rejects kingly Saul for a young little shepherd boy and establishes a covenant with him Where his son will sit on the throne forever. Jesus says that he came to seek and save the lost. That it's the sick he came for, not the healthy. As we went through 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that God chooses what is foolish, what is weak, what is low, and what is despised in this world. So that no man might boast before the Lord. different message than we hear isn't it it's one that we need trust in God the one who does not change the one who worked like this in scripture works like this today and look to him and not yourself we can't fix ourselves we need God to intervene on our behalf What we'll see in a few verses is that he has done so in Jesus. But here we also see that God is gracious to his people in that while they receive this passively, they also get to enjoy the benefits of God's work. They aren't passive onlookers. They're included. They produce the light, but they see it. They don't produce the joy, and yet they rejoice. God actually brings us out of the darkness, out of the gloom, and we experience renewal in that. This is our hope in darkness, that God will shine his light upon us, that he will multiply the nation as he's brought Gentiles in, as the church is spreading and he is bringing us joy that we might rejoice in his presence before him with fullness of joy so there's that description of the hope and it is a good picture let's see how it's explained in verses 4 to 7 we see this threefold 4 in verse 4, 5, explaining it the first one's in verse 4 For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Says God will bring oppression to an end. This is good news after we've been through Amos. God will break the yoke of his burden. There will be no taskmaster standing over you. And God is no taskmaster standing over you. God will miraculously work out their freedom. So we see in the days of Midian, it goes back to Judges 7, where the Midianites are encamped there, and Gideon, God has him take 300 guys against tens of thousands, and they defeat them. And God says he does it this way, so that the people of Israel could not boast and say, my own hand has saved me. clear that it's the lord who saved them as it will be here the second four is in verse five for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult it's a mouthful and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire the war will cease we don't need combat boots we don't need combat uniforms we're not packing them away in a footlocker somewhere we just moved and you have these boxes where you put stuff in it because you're like no i'm going to use that at some point you know but it's been in the box for two moves now and we haven't used it but we're keeping it so we can there's none of that you will not need it it'll be burned as fuel for the fire war will cease it's over Oppression will cease. Wars will be no more. Sounds good, right? Especially for Israel who has the war coming and the Syrians them. How will this happen? We see a climax in verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace. And most of us have heard this verse so many times and we know it's talking about Jesus so we don't even consider how like it would have actually sounded. No more oppression. Makes sense. No more wars. I'm tracking. A baby's going to be born. Huh? We're in darkness now. We're dealing with Syria and Israel now. We're dealing with with The Assyrians, now, how's a child going to help? And they don't even know it when they receive this oracle, but it's 730 more years before this child comes. We think these last nine months have been long. The child is going to help because Israel's truer problem not these armies. The problem that's raised in these chapters of Israel or of Isaiah is the question of will the line of David survive? Will there be a king from his line? And it does not look good in Jerusalem right now. And wrapped up in that question is a deeper one. Isn't it? the question we're really asking is will God keep his covenant promises he promised David this kingdom forever goes right to the heart of it can we trust God is he good and hope both for the present for Israel Judah and the future rests in Emmanuel. As We can connect this child with the child born of the virgin in chapter 7. You see God's answer here. The child will be born. The son will be given. He's no ordinary child. He's born of a human, and yet he is the son of God. We see his kingship and his divinity throughout the rest of this passage. He will reign. The government will be upon his shoulders. He's called Almighty God. Right there. He will sit on the throne of David and rule with justice and righteousness forevermore. God's answer and his hope for the people rests in the incarnation in God becoming man and dwelling among us. It rests in what we celebrate on Christmas morning. What we look forward to and that for which we wait expectantly. It is a marvelous mystery. I just reread J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which I would recommend if you haven't read it. And his discussion on the incarnation is so good. It sticks out every time, and yet I forget it. So there's that. I'm going to read you a little bit of it. He talked about some of the challenges or difficulties um, people have with Christianity, whether it be the atonement, God dying on our behalf for our sins, or the virgin birth, or the resurrection, or miracles. These arguments that we hear from people outside of Christianity, right? These These are the things that throw up these barricades. And Packer writes, but in fact the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie here at all. It lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. It says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the Incarnation. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity, but it makes sense of everything else the New Testament contains. If God became man and willingly died for us, how could he not be resurrected? How could he not take his life back up? What good news is this incarnation for Judah? It gives them hope. Hope that God has not forgotten. Hope that what they're going through will not always last. Hope that their darkness will come to an end. That God keeps his promises. That he does as he says he will do. In ways that are above and beyond what they would imagine. They want a good king sitting on David's throne, and they get God Himself. They should have responded by rejoicing in this hope and by keeping covenant faithfulness. And this child has come Jesus Christ, who calls Himself the light of the world. He was born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. After his temptation in the wilderness, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that this passage has been fulfilled. He writes, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And here's the thing, here's how we respond then. The next thing he says is, and from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So how should we respond? We can follow what Jesus says. Repent. We should turn from our sins and trust in what Christ has done on our behalf. And we should recognize and submit to his kingship. Thomas Watson, in the 17th century, wrote this, and it sounds like something we would hear today. Many would have Christ for their Savior, but not their Prince. Such as will not have Christ to be their King to rule over them shall never have His blood to save them. We cannot have Christ as our Savior if we do not have Him as our King. And the response that we see in scripture is the expectation of joyful submission to him because of what he's done. Well, that's all well and good. What does this mean for us practically today? We're on the other side, right? Jesus has come. He's lived. He was crucified and buried. He rose again. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. The light has shone. And yet we still feel this darkness and gloom so often. And we ask, where is the light? Where is the increase of our joy that we hear about? It doesn't feel like the harvest Sometimes it feels like a famine. It doesn't feel like we want to battle in our dividing spoils. It feels like we're getting beaten up. We look around and we still see oppression. Some of us feel it acutely. We look around and we see that war has not ceased, and enmity abounds. I think we do a disservice christianity and to those with whom we are sharing if we act like christianity makes life easy like all of our problems just go away they don't those of us who have walked with christ know that that is naive instead the bible tells us that we'll actually suffer as christ suffers as we're conformed into his image How many of you have heard the saying, "God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life"? Anybody? It's not untrue. God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but it's probably wonderful in a way other than you would guess. I had a seminary professor that would always say it this way: "God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life." Isn't that the truth? Jesus doesn't make life easy. But he will not leave you and he will sustain you through it. You still have hope. Even though the child has come and we don't feel verse 7 yet. We live in this tension where Christ is reigning on his throne. His kingdom has already been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. Theologians refer to this as the already and the not yet, where there are true things, and yet we don't experience the fulfillment of them yet. Spiritually, we can know verses 4 and 5 in truth. That we were slaves to sin and death and Satan in our flesh. But that yoke has been broken. That rod has been shattered. That Jesus, God in the flesh, took our sin upon himself. So that all who trust in him will be forgiven and will be free from that bondage. You can know that now. And while we still still see wars around us. Our battle with God is truly over. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us and that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are no longer enemies of God. We trust in Him. We are adopted as children. We are beloved. We can know that in truth now. We can see the light in Christ and we can rejoice in our salvation. That's what we look forward to during Advent. The birth of our King and Savior, that He came That the Son of David and the Son of God has come. And it's also why we look forward to the second advent. When he will return, when we'll no longer experience this darkness of any kind, when we'll not only be free from this bondage of sin, but we'll be free from its very presence and its effects. We live in this tension. We can see something akin to this if we look back at Harry Potter. You can get anything on the internet, but one of the things that you can get is this artwork where they take all the frames of a movie and they just squish them together. It looks like a barcode. And if you look at the Harry Potter version of this, it starts out like browns and then it's like almost black. And toward the end, there's this bright white line It just breaks in and then it gets dark again. And it's a scene where Harry's talking to Dumbledore in King's Cross Station where he almost dies or does die and is resurrected. That's an argument you can have later. But this happens. We know know Voldemort will be defeated at this point. We know it's going to happen. And yet we go back and the fight has to happen. And that's what right now can seem like. The light has shown. Christ has come. But he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it can feel like we're back in darkness, though the victory is won. Christ has come. He has conquered sin and death. And yet we still experience it so vividly. But the day is coming where he will return, where we will be with him. Where we will no longer see dimly, but we will see him face to face. Where we'll experience perfect peace and justice and righteousness forevermore. And as God keeps his promises, we can know that as verse 6 has been fulfilled, we will experience the fullness of verse 7. He will not leave it off. And as we look forward to that day, where Dumbledore says, happiness can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light, we can say, true joy and peace can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to look to the light Jesus Christ.